Takes from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerds, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. How you doing, John Trumbull? I'm doing all right, Darren Patterson. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. I'm doing dandy because we've got some guests here in the uh, in the house, as the kids I, say. I thought it seemed a little more crowded than usual. Yes, we do have some guests. Yeah, so we're, 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 we're chock-a-block full of some amazing guests for, t- for today's episode, my friend. I'll tell you. Well, who, who would these guests be? Who would these guests be? Well, why don't I just go ahead and tell you there, fella? Uh, we got uh, two guests. We have um, two people who I met through a uh, um, mutual podcast that we, that we all are fans of, SNL Stats, who I guess are now SNL Network, I believe, last time I checked. But mm-hmm. either way, go check them out. Uh, we have one guest calling in uh, via satellite all the way in sunny L.A., a uh, producer. He has a huge improv background, storyteller. And he had an SNL podcast before us. He was he was uh, uh, one of the originators, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rich Tackenberg. Hello, sirs. Hi, Rich. Welcome aboard. It's sad to say I'm an old school SNL podcaster. I was podcasting season thirty five or forty or something like that, and that was that was new. Wow. Yeah. You were podcasting before it was cool. And and yeah. how long did you keep that going? Five years. Ooh. Five seasons. Yeah. Garen, we've got about two more years left in us. That's, yep, that's it. <laughs> the end <laughs> is in sight. And 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 why did you stop if that's not too personal of a question? Uh you know what? It it was uh, I was putting too much time into that and not enough time into uh having a, f- a wife and other uh, obligations on the weekend. And it was like, well, how big of a fan am I? How much of my weekend am I going to dedicate to Saturday Night Live? So we ultimately wrapped it up, and uh, which was probably good. I'm still married and still an SNL well, fan, so I guess it all worked marriage. out. And you know, right. and it's yes. good for us because it, it opened up a bit of the market for us. That's right. And you paved the you paved the well. Yes, yes. Uh, we have a director, an improviser, actor, producer, co-owner of the Cold Town Theater in Austin, Texas, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Buckman. Hey, welcome, going, Dave. Dave? Hey, hey. Good. Huh? Thank you for having me. Excited yeah. to be here. Thank well, you for being here. Well, I mean, a thing we like to start with is we always like to get everybody's SNL origin stories when they come onto the show for the first time. So how did you how did you first uh, start watching SNL? Like what era was it? What are some of your favorite SNL memories? Uh, I'll go first. This is Rich. So I have uh, I've seen every episode of Saturday Night Live since 1981. I will date myself. I'm in my mid 50s. I started watching SNL back. I think it was the original cast when I was old enough to secretly stay up and watch it on my black and white 13 inch television set in my room, but not old enough to get the jokes. So I knew that they were funny, but I didn't understand why and how. Um, And it wasn't until around kind of the Eddie Murphy years that I, I started to really understand the show and then just uh, became a huge fan and, and watched every Saturday night that was helped tremendously by not having friends and not being invited to any high school parties or uh, football games or anything else that real cool people were doing on Saturday nights but just became a thing and always stuck with it and I've been watching every every season highs and lows and stayed a real fan 
fan of it through through all of it. And then, um, as I said, ended up uh, starting a friend of mine, Rob Sesternino, had a big podcast uh, in on for um, things like Survivor and Big Brother. And he had said, if you, would you be interested in doing Saturday Night Live podcast? And I was like, well, my wife has been listening to me talk about SNL every night. Maybe I could talk to Rob about it. And so I got to do that and, and just stayed a fan uh, through it all. Wow. And what, what did you call your SNL podcast? Uh, I think it was just SNL recaps. It was it was on Rob's network. It was like the Rob has a podcast network, which is still very big for reality shows and a couple of other things. Right. So it was just SNL recaps. Oh, OK, cool. And yeah, Dave, what about you? Um, very similar origin story. Um, my parents had one of the first like top loading VCRs. So they had taped a lot of the first five years and uh, well into the early 80s as well. Uh, and so I would watch those VCR VHS tapes over and over on Saturday afternoons after the cartoons were over. I would just turn to SCTV and Saturday Night Live on VHS. And then probably around 82, 83, I came online as a weekly viewer. And then, you know, as I think when as, as Eddie Murphy was leaving and that Billy Crystal and Martin Short cast came in, I was I was hooked from there on out. So in my early years, I just assumed the cast turned over insanely uh, a lot uh-huh. uh, every year. Uh, Cause that's the way it was for my first four or five years. And then when people st- stuck around it, it got weird for me. Yeah, um, it was, and then it was turning um, over almost every year around then, right? 81, 82, 83, 84, 85. It was like a lot of, a lot of shuffling a lot. So yeah, um, I just thought that's how it was. Um, and then um, all my heroes, you know, were like had improv backgrounds. So I, after college um, I found improv in college and I went and uh, made a beeline for second city in Chicago. Uh, and I worked there as a, a manager and a teacher and a uh, an, um, a director and a performer and you know did improv olympic annoyance the whole chicago improv trenches i worked at boom chicago in amsterdam as, as the artistic director for a little bit director at second city after that and then moved down to austin um and started a uh improv uh community and theater down here wow. so that's where i've been for the last 15 years Wow, that's that's terrific. I mean, Damn. Dave, I yeah. saw a lot of Boom Chicago alumni winning Emmys this weekend. Pretty pretty yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was I was there. I was there for um, when the when Brendan and Joe and Jason all met playing FIFA in the uh, in the green room. I was there when Key met Peel. I was there when Seth got SNL. I was you know it's it's just they're all good friends and kind of loving their all the successes. You know, Amber Ruffin and. Uh, everybody that's just killing it from the Boom Chicago family right now. That's fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, as far as SNL goes, do you guys have a favorite era? Because, I mean, usually, you know, mm-hmm. this, it goes like whatever era you discovered SNL, that's your favorite era. But do you, <laughs> any, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you guys' favorite, you know, era of the show? Uh, Rich, we'll start with you. Yeah, I started with Eddie Murphy and, you know, and I think as Dave said, I think the Billy Crystal year was very seminal. I thought that was amazing. But to me, my my cast was Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and Phil Hartman. That that was that was my cast. And I, I, I always think of them as just pound for pound, such heavy hitters and such a high percentage of, of good sketches. And, you know, and clearly I have favorites through the years, obviously all the big, you know, the, the big names, of course, I, I think pretty much s 
Null is one of the few shows where everybody who was fairly successful, I felt was deservedly so. Um, but, you know, uh, Bobby Moynihan is, is sort of in my heart was just someone that just really still me means the world to me. So he, he's still my guy. But I, I would definitely say the Dana Carvey years where the where, where that that's the thing that I, I latch latch on to. Yeah, that, that's that was definitely my favorite era as well, because that's that's around when I started watching the show uh, on a serious basis, I'd say. Yeah, and I think uh, I think we've all, we both said on this podcast, uh, John and I, that yeah, Bobby Moynihan is like so underrated. Like he just he would just do like so many like little things in each sketch that kind of like if you were keeping your eye on him, you'd be like, oh wow, that guy's really he's really on, he's really sharp. And I also think that there's a love. I mean, I think to me, because, you know, when SNL is great, it transcends just being a comedy sketch show. And I think that when Bobby is in the zone on that show, it there's a love that comes through and that it's just a love for being there and a love for being part of a community that at least that's what I really resonated with. And, and I always think that's, you know, my favorite part. You know, I always say that, you know, at, when SNL is great, it's like being at a party. And and I feel like he had that kind of love and, and many people have. But that. I, that was that's what I always really key into the people who you can just tell are just it, their hearts are exploding on stage when it's working. That's the best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. definitely. Dave, how about you? Yeah, I have very similar answers as well. I mean, I, I think I'm more drawn to um, performers than I am uh, individual eras. But you know, certainly Phil Hartman, Mike Myers, Jan Hooks is my jam. Yeah, uh, as far as eras go. But I'm you know I've always been very partial to these kind of like underrated performers like Gary Kroger was my first my guy hmm. um, and I loved him so much uh, when I was growing up and then you know um, Parnell I think for me is my number one oh uh, uh, I love great. everything Parnell touches and uh, every sketches he's in and for some reason I just if I could be a performer on SNL I'd want to like live in that pocket of just um, not liking what Will Ferrell's doing but uh, very cautiously going along with it. I think that to me is the funniest uh, thing you can do. Um, but I also, I, I love all the underrated performers. I think like uh, Jenny Slate's one season was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, Michaela Watkins and uh, just certain people, I think just got swallowed up that just, uh, I wish Christopher Guest, I just, I just finished watching um, that season. I went through all the eighties on uh, Peacock uh, this past summer and just watching Christopher Guest kind of like, not being able to find his his groove was so frustrating because he was so good. He was so good in everything he did that the writing just wasn't there for him. And you know those kind of those kind of performances I love so much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at somebody like Christopher Guest, and you, and it is weird that he didn't make a bigger impact on the show or stick around for longer. Than he was he did. clearly unhappy. You could tell how unhappy he was. Yeah, <laughs> he was trying. And and that Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer era, it casts a pretty long shadow when you consider that they were only there for a year. I mean, that's nuts to me to look back on that and realize that. You know what? The and not even a full year was. What was that, Dave? Because yeah. it was the writer's strike. The writer's strike cut it. I think it was only 17 episodes or something like that, oh, which really? is insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's I found it fascinating watching that season that uh, Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest were in so many sketches together that season. Yeah. And Billy Crystal never appeared in any of these Christopher Guest movies that he made. 
I always wondered. I what, never what, thought of that. That's so interesting. What happened there? I mean, Martin Short didn't yeah. either, and they're good friends, but Billy Crystal never shows up in any of those movies. And I was like, Neither why? Jamie why, Lee why, Curtis, like, which I always thought was kind of weird. Oh, that's very funny, too. Maybe, yeah. maybe she's just not comfortable improvising. I don't know. But yeah, Billy Crystal, yeah, you would think he would pop up in at least a cameo. They did so much work together. Yeah. yeah. And Dave, when you watch that season back, I remember it as like the cast, the 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 the, the season of two completely distinct, dif- different casts. Did it mm-hmm. feel like that watching it back, or was it actually For more sure. integrated than I remember? Oh no, it was very segregated. It was the Second City folks. It was Belushi and Kroger and uh, Julia and Mary Gross doing a lot of sketches together, and Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal and Martin Short doing a lot of things together. And occasionally they would pull in Gary Kroger. If they needed somebody else, but they would never pull in Belushi for some reason. And all the Belushi stuff was very just dramatic and big and boisterous and over the top. And Christopher Guest was so subtle and under it. Just, it was such like a, 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 a mishmash of, of contrast. And then poor Rich Hall in the middle of trying to bounce back and forth between these two camps, just trying to find his place. And Pamela Stephenson weighing over her head. Oh boy. <laughs> Rich Hall. Wow. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard that name in a while. Yeah, uh, he's like great. Now he moved you to know London. the rest of the story. <laughs> with, with the episode, he moved to London and had a very prolific career as a character, uh, a performer. Yeah, um, yeah. I got to meet him in Edinburgh a couple of times when we were on a boom, uh, doing a uh, Otis Lee Crenshaw shows. That's his cool. character. With, with those episodes on on Peacock, I know that on some of the episodes they they're edited way down, and like some episodes are only like say a half hour oh. long or so. Is is that and no musical guests. That era? Yeah, no musical guests anywhere in Peacock, and maybe you only get. I mean, it's ma- it's mainly weekend update and three sketches per episode is what you get. Oh, wow, a case and a monologue. Maybe sometimes the monologue's there, sometimes the cold opening's not there. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure it's a lot of rights issues with music. Yeah, uh, some classic sketches like the swim, the swimming, uh, the synchronized swimming scene is not in there, which is a crime. Oh, oh that's oh. a tragedy. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, so it's a lot. I mean, to get through all those Brad Hall weekend updates was was torture, but, um, and, uh, but they're like they're so long. They're so long. <laughs> yeah. But hey, the good the news seconds. is you could you could marathon that era pretty quickly since there are only seventeen yeah. episodes and they're edited way down. Yeah, yeah. I just I just jumped to um, the uh, the next season with uh, uh, Joan Cusack and Robert Downey Jr. So I'm in the middle of that right now. Cool, cool. Oh, Rich, nice. you had uh, something you wanted to uh, get in there. Oh, no, I, uh, sorry, I was just messing around and hit the wrong button. But no, I mean, the, yeah, those, those errors. And I think it was Tim Kazarinsky, I think, was part of that that group, wasn't he? Because I remember him at Weekend Update doing the, maybe it, was a, maybe it was a little bit later, but doing the scientist character with the words on the cards and flipping through them. Yeah, oh. he got he got cut that season with um, Robin Duke and Brad Hall. Oh, okay, got those it. Ringers. Yeah, got yeah. it. Him and Piscopo and uh, Robin Duke all got the axe that season. And I think I think Tim Kazarinski like mainly got the gig because John Belushi recommended him, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? I didn't. Know yeah, that. he was a he was a Second City performer, um, and uh, I think Ebersol came looking through Chicago, uh, trying to um, respark after the Tony Rosado season. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, uh, Belushi recommended Kazarinsky, who's on the main stage at the Second City at the time. And, and uh, Kazarinsky well, did a lot of writing. He was a he was an ad guy before he got to Second City. Oh, so he was he had already had a very prolific career writing ads in Chicago. 
That's funny so he's because a writer. Uh, uh, Phil Hartman, I know he had an advertising background as well and a graphic design background. Yeah. So, well, I mean, speaking of Second City, we're, we're going to talk Ooh. about one of the people who was, I'd say, one of the seminal people in the history of Second City, uh, Mr. Del Close. And there's a new documentary that's out about him called For Madman Only. Uh, yes, it was directed by Heather Ross, came out this year. It's uh, it's on streaming, uh, all the streaming platforms right now for, for rent. But I believe I read um, it'll actually be available on Hulu starting like October 27th. And uh, yeah, it's a documentary about Del Close, uh, somebody who I, I would I, I mean, I think it's safe to say like the layman may not know the name. But if you're a comedy, if you're a comedy person, a comedy nerd or an improv person, then you know the name Del Close. You've heard it like I've like, uh, you know, I'm a. I'm a comic and like I've definitely heard the name Del Close before. It's um I didn't know much about him before this uh, documentary. I just knew he was sort of this kind of mythic mysterious figure in improv. He he almost had like a people almost treated him like a cult leader in a weird way. Mm-hmm. That, that was the most I knew about him. Um what about the rest of you guys? Like what did you know what did you know about Del Close uh you know uh, go, you know before you went into uh each of your uh, your your lovely improv uh, backgrounds? Well, well, I had oh, Dell for two weeks before he died. I was in Dell's last uh, class at Improv Olympic. Wow. Oh. Wow. Okay, so I'd, that's a yes. I knew him. <laughs> yeah. I had gotten all the way through Improv Olympic classes and just gotten to that final level six uh, where you kind of create a show with Dell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he he died after my second class. Um. So it, I was at I.O. during that time, and it was it appeared a great morning um, for somebody I had just met. So I had seen him around the theater a lot, um, you know, in the lower levels, taking classes, seeing his shows. What my roommate, um, Ike, Ike Barinholtz, I was living with Ike Barinholtz at the time, and he was in uh, one of Dell's longest-running shows at that time called The Lindbergh Babies. Uh, and I learned two things from Dell in those two weeks. These are the two things I learned. One was, don't yawn in his presence, (laughs) which I did, and he yelled at me for. And the other is, don't wear white socks on stage, because it distracts the audience, which I never did again. Oh, So I always make sure I wear black socks uh, when I'm performing on stage. That's pretty much it. I never really got any actual notes from Dell, because he was, you know, his note. His, his classes didn't involve giving you a lot of notes. It was But really, that's notes. all you need to have a successful career in comedy, right? I mean, just right. don't yawn, no white socks. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely upped my professionalism game. I don't know how much he helped my improv, but it definitely... I, I was like, oh yeah, you take, your, take yourself seriously when you're trying to do this stuff and, you know, perform. It's about the audience, not you. So right. there was some well, gems mean, in there. I mean, but did you hear like stories about him before you oh, met him? Oh, for sure. Like, like the lore of like, you know, like just stuff that was going around the, the campfire, as it were. Just like, oh, yeah, I heard. he. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you would heard all the stories, all the stories that they mentioned in this documentary, for sure. You had heard all these things before. And, um, you know, but by the time I was there, he was, you know, he's a little decrepit. And he was, you know, he's the kind of guy that was fishing cigarette butts out of the ashtray mm-hmm. and hitting up students for weed and going to the <laughs> bathroom in the middle of your improv scene during class. He'd like. He'd just get up and leave and go to the bathroom while you were performing on stage during class. And then, you know, he'd come back and he'd still be up there because he he's the one that tells you to end the scene. 
So you, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> there's a lot of shit like that. Um, you know, and there's the misogyny and the racism and, uh, um, you know, uh, there's another great book called Guru, uh, by, uh, my buddy, Jeff Griggs, who was his kind of his final days caretaker for the last couple of years of his life. Uh, that would just kind of was a student that Charna picked and, uh, to go, just go over there and take care of Dell, make sure he doesn't, um, make sure he has food, his groceries and his, uh, there's no vermin living in his apartment. So, I mean, he was a, he was a guy that we all knew that, you know, just a dirty old hippie, the guru, uh, guy that you just were in IO to take classes with eventually. And you get to work with this mad genius. Wow. And, uh, I got to for two weeks. Okay. Uh, Rich, what about you? What, what, what have you heard about Dell? Like, I'm not going to top Dave. Jeez, <laughs> my God. I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, I not nearly. I mean, well, I, you know, on up. the improv yes, side, you know, I, I'll i make something up if that helps. <laughs> I mean, I would, yeah. I, you know, well, I started, you know, I, I moved out to LA in the early 90s, uh, but grew up in New York and I would go back regularly. And uh, one of my buddies, Mark uh, from college, would say, You got to stay over on Sundays because there's these kids at the Soho Art Center doing these improv things and it's unbelievable. And so I would come back like three times a year and I would see what was UCB. We didn't know what it was. And it was just magic. It was really like I would plan whole trips around. I got to be there on a Sunday because these, these, these kids were just unbelievable. I mean, probably my age, but I was a kid. It was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, but never really knowing the name Del Close at all. I only, you know, I knew, you know, you know, Matt Besser and Amy Poehler and, and that gang and a lot of their, you know, just from watching them. And many years later uh, in, you know, probably about, I guess, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, ten years ago, um, here in L.A., UCB Theater was out here. And uh, in my day job, I was just getting a little bored and wanted to do something and decided to take a class, took a class at UCB as Improv 101 just to just do it. And I was, you know, twice as old as everyone else who was there. And it was really fun. And I ended up going through the whole uh, uh, curriculum and staying for a couple of years and graduating from the school. Uh, and so, you know, it was a time when the people who knew Dell were the people that everyone else was talking about the way that the people who knew Dell used to talk about Dell. So people that I knew would talk about like, oh, my God, you know, uh, Amy Poehler dropped into a thing and, oh, Matt Besser did a lecture and I went to and these are the people that were learning from Dell. So. All of the things I never heard, like the stories of Dell or and much of the personality. I only knew that the Harold came from him, uh, and and a little bit about sort of that he was really influential in the UCB four, and that they had learned a lot from him, and that they gave him a lot of credit for for much of what they did. But I didn't really know him, and just as a fan of comedy, I've often seen documentaries, read books. A lot of times I'll do an audible, and there was a great book that you guys may have talked about before, but there was a book that came out a few years ago called Improv Nation, which was all about just the history of improv from the early 60s to today. And it and it really features Dell so prominently in the book as part of the larger context. So I had just devoured that book on, on, on audible.com and listened a couple of times. So I actually knew a lot of the stories going into this documentary um, because of that, but still was really excited to see it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I guess as a novice, like I've said before, like I, I had heard the name Dell. I didn't know much about him. I just like knew him as this sort of mythic figure in uh, improv. Um, but yeah, I, I would say this, um, this documentary kind of clued me into like a lot of 
things I, I didn't know, uh, which we'll, we'll get into later. Um, uh, Trumbull, what about you? What did you know about Dell before? Um, before you know, I just sort of like knew about Dell close from afar, be- just through becoming a comedy nerd in like, well, I mean, you know, I, I was on my way for that from, from childhood on. I, um, I was in an improv troupe for about five years there. And we always did like short form improv. It was much more whose line is that anyway, other than, you know, like uh, Harold long form improv Olympic type stuff. I, at times I was trying to get uh, the group to like go into the city and be part of the, uh, the day long improv marathon that they do on uh, Del Close's birthday, if I remember correctly, but I couldn't really get anybody else in the group behind on that. And uh, I'm also acquainted with, uh, John Ostrander, who is a comic writer, who was one of the people interviewed in this movie, even for Mad Men only, who was uh, Del Close's co-writer on the Wasteland comic book, which they talk about quite a bit in the movie. And in fact, the, the very first time I met John Ostrander, I was having lunch with him with a couple mutual friends. And I, pretty much the first thing I asked him about was like, if he had any Del Close stories. And he told me a great story of uh, like where... Dell thought he was having spiritual visions in his apartment because like when he would go and stand at a particular area of his apartment, he would have these just incredible intense sensations. And then eventually they found out that there was like a little bit of exposed wiring around the floor there. So he was actually getting mildly electrocuted in that area. So, Oh man. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to do the story justice, but, uh, and I remember, um, in the early 2000s, uh, I read Kim Howard Johnson's book about Del Close, the smartest, the funniest one in the room. And it's it's been long enough that I don't remember nearly enough about the book. I should give it a reread. But I remember really liking it. And he's he's a pretty fascinating character. So, And, you know, Del Close, he's also just such a seminal guy in the history of comedy because he, he trained so many people. He trained like John Belushi, Bill Murray. Chris Farley, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, uh, uh, everybody up, yeah, the SCTV crew up in Canada. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know he went all the way back to Nichols and May. That was a, that's kind of surprised me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, this this documentary it seemed like a good overview of his career. I thought, you know, it gives you, I think, the basics of. Adele Close. I mean, how, how how would you guys rate it as in terms of the information that it contains? Rich, we'll start um, with you, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was, I mean, I really liked it. It was really fun. We watched it, I think, the weekend it came out. We knew about it and watched it when it first came out. I don't think that I learned a lot more that I didn't know, but I think I was the very minor majority. I think for mm-hmm. the most part, um, it seemed pretty on a couple of things that, you know, I'm always the nerd that's like, mm, Dell actually didn't create the kitchen rules. That was Elaine May and Ted Flicker. That's not actually, you know, who cares? You know, right. in the scheme of it, I think they <laughs> captured it. And I, and I think that they captured the spirit of it. For, obviously, you know, I didn't have two classes with Dell, so who am I to say? Um, but it seemed like it captured the spirit of it. And I, 
you know, it, you know, because I always got the sense from hearing about, you know, the, 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 the legend of Dell, I think the, the lack of his success is, is one of the biggest parts of Dell's story of commercial success in, in, you know, as opposed to all the people that he came up with and trained or many of the people. And I felt like it, it captured that, uh, it's almost a, it's almost a sad story as much as an uplifting story. And I, and I liked that. I, I felt like it captured that as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I did know they did talk sort of talk about that in the doc where they say, yeah, he came up with Nichols and May and he in the 60s, he was like he taught like Howard Hessman, like they interviewed Howard Hessman, you know, Johnny Fever yeah. and WKRP in there and like and all these other iconic, you know, characters from SNL and SCTV and they all kind of surpassed him and he kind of was a little bit bitter about that. But at the same time, he's like he is a guy who doesn't compromise and he has this artistic vision that he has to see through and he wants to, you know, he has this pure artistic vision, but, and he's doing it, but at the same time, he's not, he also wants the fame and the money and recognition too. So it's like sort of a, it's a bit of a dichotomy there. Well, and it was interesting. I want to hear what David says, but like being in LA, like when I took classes, you know, most of the people I was taking it with were wannabe actors, writers, you know, Saturday Night Live performers, wannabe. And it was always the interesting debate of that. It felt like improv was a, an unbelievable amount of fun, but also a necessary tool to potentially get you to that next step. But it was, you know, but the dream was, could there ever be a way that doing improv in and of itself could be a lucrative career? that would that would make you famous and even in you know whatever that was 2010 2014 um you know no one had cracked it any more than dell who had tried to crack it in the 60s 70s 80s and 90s and it it still seems to be that sad thing that it's just when it's great it's just magic but it never translated to tv or film or large-scale theaters you know or or some way where you could make a, a lucrative living just off that alone not being a launching point to something else and i feel like that that you know that that's really the spirit of sort of the sadness around his genius mm -hmm. well said yeah i agree i agree with a, a lot of that i think it skimmed over a lot in his life um but there was certainly wasn't anything in the um documentary that i hadn't heard of before um okay. <clears throat> well i mean did you hear the story because there's a couple stories here that i wrote down and I, I was like i don't know if this is true um I think somebody mentioned that he met Tennessee Williams and like, like um, he had like, he shook hands with Tennessee Williams and like a roach sort of crawled out from underneath his sleeve and onto Tennessee Williams hand. Like, I, I was like, that sounds a little too fantastical to me. And he, he, there was also another story in his doc where somebody mentioned, Oh yeah, he met L Ron Hubbard and he sort of accidentally inadvertently gave him the idea to start up uh, Scientology. I believe that. I believe that one. Really? I, mean, I believe I believe both of those. I mean, but also, you know, they, they freely admit even the story about his dead suicide is a, is a legend, not actual fact. Yeah, so. th that was really interesting a, was the, they introduced it. Uh, they introduced like Dell's version of it with his dad committing suicide in front of him at age 10. And then very close to the end of the documentary, they they talked to uh, Kim Howard Johnson, among other people who says, yeah, that wasn't exactly true. He was actually like 20 when his dad died and it wasn't in sure. front of him. And, and you're just like, oh, wow. But and, at, at the but same time, just, it was he, like emotionally true for Dell, if, even if yeah. it wasn't literally true. He's a showman. He's a, he's yeah. a carnival act and he knows how to tell a good story. You know, even Sharna spills the beans and after the credits about 
the skull that they held onto that I actually believed was his skull. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a student there. I'd, I'd be like doing, I'd, I'd seen the skull that they had on display and I right. believed it at the time. And so, you know, it, it's from, from birth to death. He was, he was, you know, he knew the story was better, better than the actual story. You know what yeah, I mean? And, and it, so, the skull story in case people don't know it is after he died, he wanted his actual skull to be used in theatrical productions of Hamlet uh, um, like supposedly they they had like beetles eat away the flesh from his skull and then and then they used it and then it was the truth came out years later that this wasn't his actual skull um, so right. it was like so, no, I mean, Andy Kaufman type of thing all of those stories and you know he was he was crazy into rituals and his a lot of his shows that he had developed at IO um, not so much the Second City shows but the IO shows were very um, you know ritual based and uh, 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 spiritually based. So he knew how to uh, show uh, a better story than the actual story behind. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of it was smoke and mirrors, you know, the game, the Herald is smoke and mirrors. Finding the game of the scene and improv is smoke and mirrors. I hate when I'm teaching a level two class and I'm, I have to tell them, look, I'm going to break improv for you uh, today. Uh, the magic that you think this is, you're, that magic is going to go away today because I'm going to teach you how to play a game, how to find a game, how to heighten a game, and how to edit it. So it looks like <laughs> magic. And you can t- see a lot of their hearts a little bit broken um, when they learn how to do it. And uh, But it's it's a necessary way to kind of teach the new level, uh, the new generation of magicians. It, it's it's like when you get to that particular level of Scientology and they, they tell you all the secret stuff about thetans and and all that and and you mm-hmm. everyone's just like oh no <laughs> but hey if i'm doing a lot of acid and and, and uh mushrooms in Hyde ashbury in the 60s i don't i don't doubt for a minute that he met l ron hubbard and <laughs> helped him develop dianetics yeah i guess so i guess that makes sense well i mean that's something that they do talk also talk about in the stock about you know he he was uh big into the drugs as the kids say, um, you know, he's just dropping ass and whatnot. And like, especially his time in the sixties when he was, uh, directing an improv group and, uh, with Howard Hessman in it, like I said, uh, the, the, he became the director of, uh, it was called the committee was the name of the improv group. And, um, through his, you know, drug fueled haze, he was able to sort of create long form improv, which we now know it as the Herald. And he, he said he got the name from, uh, from another improviser, I believe. Yeah, I think, like, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say that, um, uh, just a clarification, that it's, the Herald is one of many long form types of long-form improvisation. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was, he certainly cracked uh, a certain way of doing it. There's a whole other branch of San Francisco improv that is much more narrative and plot-based. But he developed this, I guess, what we now know as Chicago-based improv, Um in terms of making rather improv be less about uh, following a hero's journey and a narrative in a story, but have more um, thematic type uh, uh, shows where uh, they're the characters in the relationship are more important than this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens kind of story. So it's all um, based on a, a general theme rather than trying to find some sort of linear plot. 
see, I see. I didn't know, know that. Like, I know some improv. I didn't even know there was like different types. Like you just mentioned Chicago improv. I didn't know if like, yeah. there was like I would a say regional. There's this whole other West Coast, San Francisco, Vancouver kind of theater sports uh, uh, that you'd find on uh, improv. Uh, whose line is it anyway? Kind of improv. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole other um, uh, bats b a t s uh, improv uh, version from Gary Johnstone, which is very um, hero's journey narrative hour and a half long story improvs um that's another form of long form improv dave you were saying about sort of teaching the herald and breaking the magic and it, it so resonates because when i as i said when i used to see the you know ucb in the 90s it was just magic i mean i would just we would me and my buddy mark we, we would go to eat afterwards at 1 a.m. and just like, how did they do that? And then taking classes at UCB and learning the format of the of the Herald. What was interesting for me is then I would go see, you know, ASCAT, which is not technically a Herald, but I would see other Heralds. And I was like, oh, I went from watching magicians to major league sports players because I yes. was like, oh, now I'm watching like I understand Technique. what you're doing, but you have a level of talent that I mean, I took improv for five years and on my best day, I could couldn't have held my <laughs> I couldn't have held two minutes to what the and and just and and that was its own kind of of appreciation and I now still love seeing improv and it's yeah. like I know what they're doing I just don't know how they did it and that's there's still a, to me is magic there's a whole other level beyond the magic tricks of finding the game and heightening the game that comes with rapport mm-hmm. uh, of playing with the same people for years I was in a troop down here in Austin uh, with my wife and another couple, Bob uh, McNichol and Erica May, who now run an improv theater called The Lab in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Uh, the four of us were a troupe for about 11 years. And my work with them far surpassed anything I ever did at Second City, anything I ever did at Boom Chicago artistically, because we had developed an 11-year rapport of how to improvise with each other, where we, yeah. could, we were having a show, we were having a conversation with our eyes that the audience is not aware of. Ah, and nice. so we we could the way we looked or the way you moved or the way you approached a chair you kind of knew what the other person was going to was thinking and where they were right. going with it right so I, uh yeah i got a little of that in in my group uh out of order when we were together for like five years after like a year two years together we all uh learned how to like pick up each other's signals enough that we could mm-hmm. sort of you could like steer the scene in a way, or you knew how to send a signal to uh, one of your one of your uh, fellow improvisers. I remember, like at one yeah. point when we were auditioning uh, new people for the group, and uh, and one of the people it was I was up on stage. I was doing a two person scene with them, and the guy like broke the first rule of improv. You know, first rule of improv, you do yes and and. <laughs> I started out the scene and I think I established like, oh, we were at a hockey game or something. And he was like, oh, what are you talking about? We're sitting at home watching TV. And I just immediately went, oh, okay, I guess I'm the asshole. And which was really just my way of saying like, okay, well, fuck you. If you're not going to adhere to the reality I established, you steer the scene. You know, let's see what you got, Mr. (laughs) Mr. Comedy. And he'll say that guy didn't make it into the group. But like after that, me saying like, I guess I'm the asshole. That was sort of my way of signaling to the other people in the group. Like, okay, this is not going anywhere. Good. <laughs> mm. Oh man. Yeah. I, 
I can remember auditioning for the Second City Touring Company, and um, I had uh, been performing a lot there uh, at at, um, at Improv Olympic, and I think I had just come back from Boom Chicago, and they put me in a scene at the audition with some guy who had never been on stage before, and he huh. uh, literally started doing Van Down by the River and Samurai. Oh wow! Samurai <laughs> in the middle of the scene. Wow. Like, I'm not, I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. It's he was like steering it there. And the suggestion was skee ball. So I just um, made this guy the best skee ball player in the world. Like Uh everything he was doing was awesome. And that's a yes, Van Down by the River and Samurai is how you play skee ball. And we're going to just work your ideas into the skee ball scene. And I got a call back, I think, from doing that just by. Uh, I think they knew I didn't have to call it out. They knew that that guy was a train wreck. Uh, I think they wanted to see what I was going to do with him. Uh, ah. And I, I think I got that call back based on just like completely just like buying into his reality uh, that that was an appropriate thing to be doing. <laughs> well, see, that's, that's great. Yeah. You, I mean, you did the best. You and could that guy you was had. Chris Farley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the sketch came from. Very nice. Bob um, Kirk was in the audience, just writing it down as as and what you saw tonight live was verbatim. Wow! <laughs> and history, and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> Call that a callback, kids. Love uh, it. I, I thought it was really interesting to hear like the the reminiscences of uh, people who knew Dell or interviewed Dell, uh, and they had stories to tell, like like George Wint and uh, Bob Odenkirk. I, I wish there had been a little more of that. Of course, like there are certain people that we can't hear from any longer, like like John Belushi or Chris Farley, mm-hmm. who are no longer with us, and then people who, for whatever reason, didn't talk to them in new interviews, like Bill Murray or Tina Fey. Uh, I, so I wish we I wish we could have gotten like a more comprehensive picture of the guy. And so it's I I feel like in some ways it's a shame that they didn't do this movie ten years ago even when we could have talked to more of those people, you know? No, absolutely. Yeah. The way they, they uh, created this doc was pretty interesting. Cause it's uh, like you said, it was like half of it was, or a, a good portion of it was like just talking heads interviews, you know, George Wentz and Bob Odenkirk. And then they also included um, sort of this, I guess this dramatic, you know, recreation of uh, young Del Close creating the wasteland comic with, um, you know, John Matt Ostrander Wal- and yeah, Michael. Exactly. And it was like them sort of recreating what they, you know, them. It was a, it was the recreation of them making the comic book. And it, that was yeah. just kind of stuck in and kind of sprinkled out throughout the doc. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if, if that was a, if that was a, I don't know. That, that kind of took me out of the documentary a little bit. I don't know. I uh, like that. I felt like it broke up the documentary so that it wasn't just talking heads. I thought, yeah. obviously, never meeting Del Close. I thought James Urbaniak was great as Del oh, Close. Perfect. Um, perfect. So yeah. I, re- really I really liked that. I, I felt like it. I think I liked the talking heads pieces more because of those. I, I, I would say, I don't know that. You know, if, if I were writing and I don't write movies for a living, I don't know what I would have picked. I don't know that anchoring it around the comic book did anything for me personally because I didn't know why this moment in time was such a pivotal moment in the life of Del Close uh, that I never really understood so it felt like I liked them as little these little standalone moments but I don't I don't know that for me it moved the story of Del Close forward at all 
Yeah, I, I think that was it. Like it didn't. Yeah. It didn't seem I to think they, they made the choice to center it around the creation of the Wasteland comic book because so much of the Wasteland comic book was built around stories that Del Close had. Um, but they didn't really mm-hmm. delve into any of the individual stories. They just kind of showed snippets. And at, at the beginning, I thought, oh, wow, they're really kind of doing John Ostrander a disservice because they, they kind of painted him as like, oh, he's this nerdy guy who was just like lucky to be there in the same room as him and i'm like well no john ostrander brought something to the party too um i mean he was established as a writer and he was also an actor in the chicago scene um and so i that raised my hackles a little bit just because i know uh john personally not not real well but uh and i the the scene where like they had uh del close calling into dc comics and they had uh, lauren lapkus as the uh assistant who was having to deal with his calls i was like Okay, first of all, that looks nothing like what DC Comics looked like in the 1980s. It wasn't anywhere near that uptight of an office. Um, so uh, that I had a little trouble with, that scene. Um, uh, ironically, it's funny. I, I love that. I To me, that with uh, with Lauren and Lennon Parnum, it, uh-huh. was, it was a moment of just comedy for the sake of comedy that was almost yeah. certainly improv And yeah. I wish that the movie had more of that because it, it captured more, I felt like, of the spirit of like, oh, this this is a this is a movie about comedy and i wish i was laughing more and that had that moment to it for me yeah I, it was a scene just, that i would have loved yeah, i think i would have loved just, that scene it just how grounded and normal it felt the conversation yeah. i i just i couldn't uh get on board with that scene just because i knew it wasn't truthful <laughs> um, so i was like okay first of all who are you playing <laughs> And second of all, that just looks like generic office. It doesn't, the, the DC offices were much more fun than that. In the, the mid eighties, they had like bende dots on the wall and stuff like that. You know, you know, when you would walk into the offices at DC comics, you knew that it was the offices of comic book company. They'd had a statue of Clark Kent reading a copy of the daily planet in the waiting room. Um, and there was like a full size phone booth there. So I, I just think like, I, I think the point of the scene was very, well put in that nobody in the real world cares about Dell <laughs> or cared yes. about Dell except yeah. for comedians and comic book writers yeah. who are fascinated by the guy and hold him as a, a mythological uh, um, uh, God of some sort. Whereas everybody else in the rest of the world, even if they enjoy the comedy he's brought forward, they could care less about his eccentricities or his legends or his rituals. You know what I mean? They just, yeah. they don't, yeah. they don't care as much. And that's kind of what I, they were discussing that scene is we don't give a shit. Just do what the fuck you're going to do. Our, that's our true. That's guy. true. And that's, I mean, coming from the comic book world too, I, that's something I'm very used to like people who've had mm-hmm. like a huge influence on the comic book world, like Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko and the average man on the street doesn't know their names. Um, when they or, or want to know, <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I, I remember like a friend of mine on Facebook, he's a photographer and he does a thing where he will post uh, a photo of a celebrity with a camera of some kind. You know, he's like, Here's an uber cool celebrity with an uber cool camera. And around the time I think it was Jack Kirby's 100th birthday was coming up, I was like, Hey, here's a picture of Jack Kirby with a, with a, a camera. You should, you know, put this up when his birthday rolls around. and my friend replied, 
who? And I, and it, oh, my heart just sank because I was like, how do you not know who Jack Kirby is? Um, mm. But, you know, be, that being said, like, even though I thought they were doing John Ostrander a bit of a disservice at the beginning, I liked how they gave him like one of the last words in the movie. And he said one of the more insightful things towards the end of the movie where he was like, you know, even if the details of the story aren't true, it's still worthwhile because like stories are just lies that have like a bit of truth in them. And I, I really like that. And I really, I thought that was one of the better moments in the movie. So I, I felt like they redeemed John somewhat by the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know, Rich, what are your, what are your thoughts on the, uh, on the doc of, of the whole, like, what did you like? What did you not like? Um, you know, I, I, as a, a, an improv fan nerd, I liked that they featured a couple of people who I find hilarious that are not necessarily big names, you know, David Pasquese and, mm-hmm. you know, who I just I, I just think is so amazing. And, uh, you know, and, you know, Craig Kakowski and, and one of his partners, like like mm-hmm. it was just I really like to see people who if you are a comedy nerd, you know, these people are very funny, even if they're not uh, the big names. You know, I, I also would say I did like you know the animation style i don't think that they invented it at this point but i think that they did keep it moving along when there wasn't uh when there wasn't actual pieces um i you know i loved some of the found footage i for me personally i would have loved more actual bits i think even when they they had a bit from the committee of uh you know which you know i barely recognized anybody i don't know the committee but they did a national people you know doing the national anthem and one guy refuses to stand and i was like oh yeah that's a that's a good sketch like that you could play that sketch today that would you know i could see that happening at dodger stadium tonight so like and i i do think that you know i wish that there were time for more of that in the piece you know seeing john belushi with a fish like he did a sketch at second city involving a fish and like there was one line and it was just really funny and i think that i would love to have seen more of that and i realize there's a lot of issues around that but i but I liked that there was that. Uh, so, you know, a lot of that stuff I liked. I liked seeing the Canadian stuff. And, you know, anytime we get to, you know, of all the, you know, when we think about the people that he, that Dell worked with at Second City, all the huge names that came out of that. But we actually featured Bob and Doug McKenzie of the Great White North, which for me, it, you know, I loved Bob and Doug McKenzie. So that I was a huge fan of. I liked that mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so yeah, I thought that was fun. You know, the, you know, the, I I think one of my bigger regrets is that I think that there were so many people talking about why he was so influential and talked about him in very broad terms about how he wanted you to be fearless and kind of, you know, the, the basic tenants. But I don't know that I ever really heard someone really explain how he made them a better improviser, even if it was an example that I, as a sort of outside person, wouldn't understand. It did feel very repetitive to me because people weren't getting in the weeds and and I don't know why, but I, I, I felt like I kind of like I don't know that I took away that I thought he was a genius. What I took away is that people who I respect thought he was a genius and I only scratched the surface of why. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys had the same thing or if that was just me. Uh, hmm. Well, I I'll, I'll let you guys speak. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a hardcore person into anything, I think you you always wish like a documentary would go more in depth because you're always looking to discover more about that thing that you're passionate about. Um, like there was one bit where I was like, well, wait a minute, what's that about? Let's get into that a little bit, where Dave Thomas 
mentioned offhand that uh, Martin Short hated Del Close. I was like, well, wait a minute. Let's <laughs> yes, let's let's delve into that for a few minutes. Like, tell us why he hated Del Close. Or there why was a Del lot Close... glossed yeah. over the people that did not like Del. <laughs> yeah, and the reasons yeah, I why. Wish they didn't. So I felt like that. there was um, a lot of love for Del in this documentary, but there's also a lot of other documentaries about Del. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this one kind of they all kind of like hold their cards close to their chest because they never know which one's going to be like the right the the right one, you know. So they got like some really good uh, uh, famous people to comment in this one. But there's also they were also trying to make Guru its own uh, uh, narrative movie based on that book. And then I think there's another one. One of my buddies is uh, writing about uh, Del and Sharna's relationship um, that's being in that's in pre-production right now. Uh, so there's a lot of different different legends about Dell, some good and some bad. This one, I think, lost over a lot of the bad. Um, they kind of like, you know, even the stuff about him, like having to go to a psychiatric hospital um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, having to be pulled out to come do shows and, and put back. It was just very like, ha, 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 uh, kind of like, isn't this a crazy, but, but you know, why he was there is never really discussed, you know, uh, the, the, um, the way he treated people was not, good um mm-hmm. however you know he why he was important was that because he developed a, a style of comedy that we all have the benefit today of feeling like okay that's that that is that is how f- funny works but if you, if you ever see comedies from the late 70s and early 80s and the early 70s you know comedy generally as a rule doesn't hold up but comedy back then was really not funny um i you see some of these older Silent Life sketches or uh, older uh, comedies of uh, these feature films, and you think to yourself, like, how is this funny? Like, what is the joke here? Like, why didn't the audience laugh once at a weekend update for like three or four years? Um, because they weren't telling jokes; they were saying weird things and hoping the fact that it was weird was funny enough. Uh-huh. Um, and Dell figured out how to mind patterns and relationships and uh for comedy and how to you know you go deep with relationships with truth and honesty and then you find repeatable patterns that audiences can recognize and the actors can repeat uh and heightening stakes and he kind of developed this comedy that we all take for granted right now that doesn't seem so hard anymore to uh to get because it's it's pretty ubiquitous form of comedy but back then nobody knew how to do that and he kind of he kind of figured it out so he is a genius but he's also really hurtful to a lot of people too so i think for the most part the documentary wanted to make nice um to the people who love dell uh and kind of get their involvement i don't think you're going to get sharna involved in something that's going to like bring out the dark side of of dell or Mm -hmm. you know a lot of those people that Love Dell. They're not going to open up Andrew Alexander, of course, from Second City, who, you know, they all have their own legacy to protect it, too. And if Dell's goes down, there's also goes down to some extent. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you, Dave. Like, I thought, I mean, I thought this documentary was good, but it, it was sort of a, it's a nice primer, I thought, for me. Yes. Like, it's a, it's a good idea. I mean, it's a good documentary just to get the basics about, you know, who he was and what he did. But yeah, I did find myself wanting 
you know, just a little bit more. I just really wanted to get more to the meat of it because, like, it's like what you said. There, it did like touch on a few things, but it didn't really get into it. Like, mm-hmm. um, like, like Trumbull, like you said, like where they they, they set where David Thomas was like, yeah, Martin, Martin Short hated him. I was like, well, why? Yeah. Let's get into that. Like, yeah. um, they like, talked about him. A, they talked about him like being. Yeah, there's a story was, there, but. But it is a story. The whole thing is a story. It's it's a this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened documentary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like they also told a story about where I think it was after Belushi died, like Dell like really went on a big drug bender and he tried to fight one of one of his students, and like John Candy had to get in the middle of it, and it got so bad they had to like pretty much throw him out of Toronto or something. Like Mm -hmm. you know, it's I mean. I mean, they, I, I don't know. I was, I would have just loved to know more about that. You know, his like, his dark he was stuff. a crazy person, and crazy people were allowed to, crazy men, were allowed, crazy white men, <laughs> were is. allowed to be crazy white men, uh, for pretty much up until last year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, like, yeah, like Del- Dave Tom, Dave Thomas says, no, he was, he was, he was a legit madman. He was, he yeah, was legitimately crazy. And so, you know people celebrated white guys for so long that were genuinely insane that we Mm -hmm. were not allowed to have uh, that kind of sway over people (laughs) uh, anymore. But uh, Dell was one of those guys that were just like, people just excused his, um, his faults for the sake of his genius, which is, you know, how, um, you know, so many uh, other heroes of ours, have uh, come down, you know, like you know, Bill Cosby or uh, um, uh, Louis C.K. or uh, any one of those guys that just like, geez, like Woody Allen, you know, like heroes that uh, of mine that you just I can't. It's hard to look at their art anymore. And uh, Dell's, we're lucky that Dell's art is uh, um, uh, vanishes in the air as soon as it's done. So yeah. Uh, so I, somebody, I like the metaphor don't have anything... that he had uh, towards towards the end of the the doc where he talks about like fireworks are the only more ephemeral medium than improv because yes. like you know it's it's gone within ephemeral. a few seconds for sure. Uh, so his influence is there, but you know I also don't think the documentary did a great job of, of showing great improv. I wish I wish yeah. this documentary could have like shown me some of those some truly funny things happening in those uh, clips from the late sixties, early seventies, when he was uh, doing shows after the sketch show uh, at second city, where he'd have his own underground workshop. I wish there's something in there that made me like, yeah, that's, that's good improv. It's a good representation of what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing. It's, it's hard to find that. I just wish they would, somebody would crack that code of being I, I able to show was- improv. There was a story in uh, the the Truth in Comedy book that he co-wrote with uh, uh, Jarna, and I think there was a third co-author on that, and I'm blanking on the name, and I don't have the book handy. But they were they were talking about like supporting your your fellow team members in an improv scene, and like somebody had started a scene that established that they were at a high school prom, and they said Bill Murray immediately just grabbed someone else and just started dancing in the background just to like lend that atmosphere to the scene. And that was like mm-hmm. one of their examples of like how you support without like taking over the scene. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it would have been nice to see more of more stuff like that. Like that committee scene, that was, that was hilarious. I would have loved to have seen more of that and just like, that oh, was this a sketch. Dell gave that us the, the, ri- the tools to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was a written sketch. That was what we call a blackout sketch, which is no longer than a minute. Uh, uh-huh. It's just one joke. Um, okay. uh, very similar to Second City style. Yeah, I mean, they had like a few uh, improv sketches, but yeah, it was mostly just uh, just to show up the famous people that were in it. Like that one they had with uh, Bill Murray in it, I mm-hmm. believe it was, I think it was Andrea Martin. I could be mistaken. But um, yeah, they it looked just had, like, like her. It sure looked like her. It did, right? <laughs> All right. It's not just me. Uh, yeah, but he just like showing clips of improv scenes that just happen to have, you know, people who went on to become famous, like Rachel Dratch and Adam McKay and uh, mm-hmm. you know, Matt Besser and uh, even, even John Favreau. I had no idea John Favreau took improv, but he, they had a clip Oh, yeah, of he was at I.O. Wow. That makes sense. I, I think that problem is very... And I think the problem that we're talking about is very indicative of just improv as an art form, because I know from people at UCB and people who've done, you know, tried to put improv on TV or even, you know, put together, you know, promo reels of famous improv groups. And there's there's something that gets lost when you try to edit. You know, it's like, well, you know, you can't have you know, there's you have to kind of be in the room and, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out. But I think that. I've seen that time and time again, that if you're not there where you actually hear the suggestion and then there's this beat and like, but then when you try to make it a clip, it's four minutes and four minutes doesn't really hold when you're watching it on TV. And I think that's really the, that, that like, like Dave said, I think I struggled with not seeing the brilliance of what Dell was doing. And that I think is the existential issue with why, you know, one of the reasons why these people who are only great improvisers are people we don't know, because it is so hard to capture outside of being in the room, I think. Mm -hmm. I think if you took a really good troupe and filmed them doing 30 different improv shows you could probably get five of them to be worth editing down to a half an hour show for television i think that's the only way you could do it is by quantity and taking the best of them and you could have a tv show if you had the patience for that and the money for that the tj and dave movie um trust us this is all made up is maybe the best example of seeing improv filmed because i think they really nailed how to do it. Alex Karpovsky directed it. Um, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic document of what good long form improv is. It's uh, TJ Jaganowski and Dave Pasquese doing a two person show. There's a little bit of behind the scenes stuff of the day leading up to this show, but the show is that they capture is fantastic. Dave, I think I've seen that movie nine times, maybe ten yeah. times, it, and and I skip the behind the scenes and the afterwards, and just it is just perfection. It is so yeah. amazing. But I don't know that there's I like if you if I said to you, hey Dave, could you cut me a two minute trailer of that movie? I don't know that it would be that funny, and I think that's the challenge. No. Yeah, for sure. Back in the, I don't know if it was the 90s or early 2000s, Bravo recorded, uh, they did a pilot of ASCAT, the the UCB main show back when the UCB 4 were still doing it before a lot of the success. Uh, and I remember I was so excited. My friends were there. They had seen it filmed. They, you know, they recorded two, two shows and, uh, and, and I remember watching it on Bravo and it was like, Nah, it was okay. Like it wasn't great. It was and okay. in my head, I'm like, oh, they must have not recorded a great night. And my friend who was in the audience said it in the audience, it was hilarious. And it just and didn't are, translate. Those are some of my favorite improvisers <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. In that cast. And uh, I, 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 
I, I've seen so many of their live shows that, that those group of people when they were back in Chicago um, before they'd moved to New York. Uh, and it was, and they're all unbelievable improvisers. And that show on those DVDs is about a seven or an eight compared to what I've seen them do. Wow. Uh, right. Before. Okay. Uh, actually, Rich, I mean, I'm, this doesn't have anything to, anything to do with the doc, but I just, I just got to ask you, since you've said you've been to so many UCB shows and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a fan of it. Like, can you, what's one of the most memorable shows you've seen at UCB? Does you have one that sticks out in your mind? I just, I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, there's there's tons, and the the magic of of uh, of of improv is it won't mean anything to you. It was Matt Walsh <laughs> screaming. Well, well, at, it was it fine. was it was a moment where Matt Walsh screamed at Adam McKay. He will tag you back, and that happened in nineteen. Well, I'll say two thousand and one. And me and my buddy Mark still quote it today. It was one of the funniest things. Um, but it doesn't mean anything now. It it you know it's it's completely lost to the ether. Um, um, you know, and seeing, you know, certainly seeing the the talent, you know, like, I mean, I saw a lot of people back in the day, as you know, Dave talked about some people who obviously went on to be famous, but also to, just to remember, there were a couple of people that I just, there was a, an improviser named Miriam Tolan, who was mm. just amazing. And it was like, oh, and Rachel and, and, and made it and Rachel Dratch made it and Tina Fey made it from that era and Miriam didn't. And it always seemed to me so uh, random why certain people made it um yeah but yeah it, there was just there was just moments of magic and the the i'll always remember because obviously all of those people were just amazing and everyone in the movie was amazing but i always remember back at the day that it was amy poehler was the one who could turn a scene she could she could just she somehow turned it 90 degrees with one sentence that was always like i remember thinking if i was up there and we paused and you said okay come back tomorrow with your best line i wouldn't have thought of that and she thought of it in the moment and those mm -hmm. moments of magic i just I, I i never shook it was just so great all right yeah and i mean i think that's what's so amazing about a good improv scene and it's also such a rush when you're in a great improv scene is like you're removing those barriers between thinking of something and doing it you just do it in the moment that you think of it and i found like a when I was in scenes like after the show, I would almost go blank with it uh, because it's almost like you're uh, hypnotized. You're you're like you kind of removed your conscious mind from it. And then like somebody tells you about it afterwards and you're like, oh, yeah, I do kind of remember that. But like in the moment, you don't necessarily remember that. It's um, like what it's like listening to somebody else describe a dream that they just had. And it's right. the most boring thing you could ever hear in your life when somebody's trying to describe an improv show to mm -hmm. you. And, uh, it's, you know, I, I've gotten okay at it when I have to tell my wife about something good that happened during the show that night. Uh, she's an improviser too, so she can take it, but trying right. to describe an improv scene to somebody that's not an improviser is Ugh. excruciating. Cause you feel it's like such the very idiot. essence of you had to be there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cause there's just so much context. All of comedy is context and inside joke. And if you weren't there for the beginning and the seed of the context, the humor part kind of uh, uh, is irrelevant. You know, if mm -hmm. you, uh, you know, that's the David Letterman uh, uh, notion that all comedy is an inside joke. So he would like get a do a bit at the top of a show. And if you tuned in late to 
a Letterman episode and he was already on this bit that the audience understood and Paul Schaefer understood and they were everybody laughing at it because they were there at the beginning of the episode. But if you missed it, it wasn't funny to you. Um, so right. it, the same thing happens when in an improv show, if you're not there for the formation of the germ of the idea, it kind of just, it's a little flat. Exactly. Hmm, makes sense. Exactly. You know, there's something I was going to say about the movie too. That in this, since we're talking about improv in general, one of the things that uh, that I was interested to hear Dell talk about at the end, or I think it was Adam McKay talked about Dell, how you know back in the '80s where it was really, you know, he took, you know, the messaging in the world was it's all about you and you are the, you know, greed is good, and you know, if you're going to be successful, you're going to be the one who makes it happen, and this idea of community and trusting each other and not being the spotlight, um, it to me that is so I, I, w- I would love to have heard more, but I really liked that that was, you know, a real part of it. And in the movie, they show Dell at the very end, you know, before he passes mm-hmm. away, sort of talking about a little bit of that, because I think that, you know, uh, you know, a- as a fan of comedy, as a fan of improv, I just went because it was funny. It just made me laugh and it kind of was shock and awe. But you know, as someone in in their forties who didn't want to be a performer, but who took a class, I think that's one of the things that kept bringing me back was that this idea of like, boy, I wish, I wish life was more like this, where we just, yes. And we just support each other. If someone's a real dick, they're probably going to sort of get phased out of the group. And it's, it's not going to be about that. And I like that the movie sort of touched on that. I, I would love to have heard more, it, it, but, I, but it seems so counter to who Dell was as a human being it seemed like he had this wonderful ideal that he in no way embodied in any aspect of his own life <laughs> that's uh wow i mean that's a fantastic note to wrap this thing up on i mean i think well put perfect yeah Del. uh yeah so i mean as far as documentary goes i enjoyed it i liked it i i, I would highly i would recommend it to people definitely people who don't know who dell is uh you know, just well, I would say, just totally watch it, and you'll be. You'll, it'll open up your eyes to like a lot of stuff you you, had, you didn't know. Where you're like, oh, this guy created all of this. He created pretty much everything in comedy I like. You know, it'll it'll if, open your eyes. I, I recommend this doc highly. If anyone out there has never seen a Harold, watch any episode of Modern Family. That is mm. a Harold. How they write, how they structure that story. Really? That is a Harold. Oh, interesting. very okay. interesting. Wow, I now I want to go back and watch fa- one. Not my favorite show, but widely acknowledged that those are Harold's story structure. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Okay. I never, that. I never, I've never heard that before. So I'm going to look at Modern Family in a new way now. So, wow. well, uh, Rich and Dave, uh, thank guys, you so uh, much for joining us for this. Um, where where can people uh, find you on the interwebs or follow you online? <laughs> Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rich Tack, and uh, and uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, there will be live storytelling back in LA again in person. Uh, but in the meantime, covering SNL with my friends over at, as you said, the SNL uh, network, uh, I will have been on the season premiere episode, which is probably already aired, and uh, mm-hmm. and we'll be doing that regularly. Very excited to dig into a new season and uh, and to see the show again. Awesome. Uh, and I, you can follow me at Dave Buckman on Twitter. Uh, you can also reach me out to me on Facebook or Instagram if you want. And uh, you can also find out more about Cold Town Theater at Cold Town Theater, C-O-L-D-T-O-W-N-E theater.com, as well as Austin Sketch Fest at ATX Sketch Fest. 
Fantastic. Okay. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Darren Credible. That's D-A-R-I-N Credible. And you can follow me on Twitter at Trumbull Comic. That's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L and the word comic. And you can follow the show page at SNL Nerds Show. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's it for this week for this uh, special episode about uh, for Mad Men only. Uh, go check it out on the, your streaming service and learn a little about one of the seminal figures in comedy. Uh, so I think that's about it for this episode. Darren, do you have anything else? Uh, no, I think we're good. I think we, I think we got I think we got to the heart of it. Were they I supposed to yes did. and that, or I don't know? Uh, yeah, that's good enough. You know. <laughs> I, well, I guess um, I'm the asshole. <laughs> there you go. Call back. <laughs> so uh, we will see you next time. Yes, and uh, a lovely you. host. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, so we'll see you next time. And until then, nerds out. out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the non-productive network is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.